I don't know if you've ever looked at the Australian coat of arms. Probably you haven't. It's not something that you wake up thinking about. Uh, but the Australian coat of arms is very Australian. Uh, because on the Australian coat of arms, there is a kangaroo and an emu. Two animals that you pretty much only find in Australia. And those two animals were chosen for the Australian coat of arms because they are so uniquely Australian. But also because neither of those creatures can move backwards. They can only move forwards. The emu has a, a unique three-toed foot that if it attempts to move backwards, it falls. The kangaroo cannot move backwards because of its large and heavy tail. Both of those creatures move forward only. As we gather this morning, we're gathering as a unique and different group of people. We are unlike any other church in the world because we're made up of unique people. You're unlike anyone else. In the world. And not only has God made you unique, He's called you to Himself, He's made you a believer, or He wants you to become a believer, and in your life of faith, He wants you to move forward. He wants you to constantly be drawing closer to Him. Now, we believe in two complementary but also paradoxical beliefs. We believe first, in instant justification, and second, in progressive sanctification. What does that mean? We believe that instant justification means that as soon as you say yes to Jesus, that if you were to die in the very next moment, that you would stand before God completely justified from your sin, that you would be forgiven of all of your transgressions, that when God looked at you, he would not see your unrighteousness and your sin, but rather he would see Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice for you. By the way, instant justification, immediate justification, is the only justification that we can receive. You see, there is no gradual justification. You can't earn justification. You can't work it up. You can't build it. Justification, being seen as completely sinless and made righteous before God, it's only possible by God granting us that status. We can't make it our own or earn it. In Galatians, Paul said, You know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It doesn't matter how much of the law you know or how much of the law you keep. It doesn't matter how long the list of things you do right or how long the list of things you avoid that are wrong is. You cannot be justified. Only God can grant you justification. So God grants instant justification as a gift, and then God partners with us for progressive sanctification. Though I'm justified in a moment, I'm not perfected in a moment. Unfortunately, that perfection work, that work of God making me more and more like Jesus, it is something that is going to take a lot of time. And that's the reason that we gather this morning, and we're a gathering predominantly of Christians who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but we are not a gathering of perfect people. No one here is perfect. We might be righteous in God's eyes, but we are still imperfect. 
We are still struggling with the flesh. We're still struggling with sin. God is making us more and more like Jesus, but he hasn't finished that work yet. And whether you've been a Christian for a week or for 40 years, there's still a progression that's happening. There's still a work that God wants to do. The word sanctify means to be made righteous, to be made holy. And so in God's eyes, we're justified, we're, we're righteous from a legal sense, but we're being made holy practically over time. Hebrews 10.14 gives us this paradox in a single statement. It says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That verse says he's perfected all those who are being perfected. He has perfected or made righteous, past tense, all those who are being made righteous, present tense. So we're living in this already but not quite yet status. And this already not yet idea can be confusing. Because it's spoken of in scripture in present tense and past tense, but also future. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's speaking of Jesus being crucified on the cross outside the city that he might sanctify people through his own blood. And you read that and it seems like Jesus dies on the cross to sanctify us and that's true. But justification is the first step in that sanctification. If I told you, hey, listen, I'm going to go home after church and I'm going to make you some brownies, you'd probably be pretty excited, right? <laughs> Pastor Daniel is known for how good he can bake, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to crack three eggs, right? Now, that's an important step in making the brownies. Really, all I know about baking brownies is it's eggs and the brownie mix that you buy from the store. Those are really the only two steps I know about. But I would just say making brownies. I wouldn't mention all of those incremental steps. And what Paul is saying there is that Christ died for our sanctification, but it starts with our justification. good example of this is the opening in the letter of the Philippians, Paul says, I thank God upon my every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's thankful that they've had this fellowship in the gospel, that they've been believers, that they put their faith in Jesus, that they are now the same, and that they have put their faith in Jesus. And then he says in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He started this work, and we are brothers and sisters in the gospel. We have, we have come together in Jesus, but I know that God will continue to do this work in your life until the very last day, when we are all made perfect. The believers in Philippi were already Christians. They were already justified, but they were not yet perfect. And the same is true of us. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been justified, but you're not quite perfect yet. And all of this is really important because this is where we live right now in everyday life. 
This is where we live in the grand scope of human history. We live in the church age. We live in the age where Jesus Christ has come. He's offered himself the sacrifice for sins. We're able to experience that forgiveness, but we're also still struggling in this world and the temptations that it provides. This is important. This is where we find ourselves. And it's important for us to recognize a central figure in this chapter of history. Because in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us that what all of this is about to kick off, and he says that there will be someone who is here among us during this time, the Holy Spirit. And not only is the Holy Spirit a central character in this chapter of human history, he's the superhero in our own personal story of sanctification. Here's what's crazy. The Holy Spirit is the hero of our sanctification. But most of us live most of our lives completely unaware of his presence. He's walking among us like Clark Kent, unrecognized because he's wearing glasses. (laughs) Today we're going to study John 16 to change that so that we are aware of the one who is the superhero of our sanctification story. Let's read John 16 and verse 1. These things I have I spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who has sent me, and none of you ask me where you are going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. A few years ago, I received a text message from my father that was completely unexpected. He texted me to let me know that my mother had gone into heart AFib and that they were headed to the hospital. Now, up to that moment, I was completely unaware of what heart AFib was. Years later, people here in the congregation would have the same experience, and I would be familiar with it at that point. But when I received that text message from my father on a random weekday, I had no idea what AFib was. Now, it seemed pretty serious because it was connected to the word heart. And anything having to do with your heart seems like it's a major health issue. So... While I was waiting to hear back from my dad because they were headed to the hospital, I googled heart AFib. I wanted to know about what this condition, disease, what it was. And it didn't take long to learn that heart AFib is the condition when the upper chamber of your heart is beating faster than the lower chamber. In other words, your heart rhythm is out of sync. Now, in those moments, I went from being unaware and unconcerned about heart AFib to very concerned and somewhat aware of what it was. 
Now, I still, to this day, don't really understand how the heart works. I don't understand how a heart goes out of rhythm and how they get it back in rhythm. There's so much about it that I still don't understand. I know that my mother spent a few days in the hospital and that she went underwent a procedure that got her heart back in rhythm. And for the most part, she's had no problems since then. But now I'm aware. And if you told me that you struggle with heart AFib or someone you care about, I would know what you were talking about. Let me be clear that I don't think that when you walk away today from this message or from the series of messages that we're currently doing, that you're going to say, I totally get the Holy Spirit. I totally understand him. I, I know exactly how he works. My hope is not that you'll have this comprehensive understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus is not even trying to give the disciples that in this passage. My hope is that you will have what they had. You will have this awareness of who he is and how he can help you, what it is that he does. That you'll see how he can transform you and guide you and comfort you, teach you, train you, help Throughout this passage in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus constantly refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. And that's what he does. And he wants to help us in this progressive sanctification that we are all to be a part of. Now, while Jesus doesn't explain everything about the Holy Spirit, he does name him. He tells us that he will send the Holy Spirit and it's appropriate that he's named this because, yes, he is holy, like God the Father is holy and God the Son is holy. He is also holy, but he's named this not only because he is holy, but because this is what he brings about in us. As he helps us in this progression of sanctification, he helps us to become holy as he is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy in nature, and he produces holiness in our nature, in us. One of the ways he does this is through conviction. Verse 8 says that the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us. And conviction is when we feel in our hearts the gravity, the seriousness, the truth of something. If you've ever experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you know that it perhaps is described as a feeling. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches the gospel and the people hear it, the Bible says that they are pricked in the heart. Perhaps you felt it when you were a young child and you were in church and a fire and brimstone preacher was pounding the pulpit and you knew that you desperately needed Jesus. And perhaps it was when a friend shared with you the gospel and you recognized that there was no way that you could earn your own salvation, but it could only be given to you through Jesus' sacrifice. Perhaps you've felt it when you've watched some demonstration or illustration of Jesus' crucifixion in a play or in a movie, or you've simply read about what Jesus underwent in Scripture and you recognize that it isn't just a horrible thing that happened to someone, but it's something that Jesus did for you, and you feel the weight of that. 
the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and to persuade us that our hearts are wicked. And this is important work because we are constantly telling ourselves what? I'm a pretty good guy. We are constantly telling ourselves, I'm better than most people. I'm better than those people. I'm better than that guy. I'm better than her. The Holy Spirit needs to persuade us because it is so easy for us to see the faults of others and so hard for us to see our own faults. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, you're like someone who is trying to get the speck out of someone's eye while you have a whole log or beam in your own eye. But it's easier to see the speck in someone else's eye than it is to see the log in our own eye. It's so much easy to, easier to judge other people. And so the Holy Spirit does this necessary work. And by the way, this is what has to happen when preaching takes place. That while I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit is also speaking. And I can't tell you how many times after a sermon, somebody will be like, how did you know about that? And I'll be like, what, what about what? And they'll say, well, you talked about this. And I'll think, I don't remember saying that in my sermon at all. I don't remember talking about that at all. But the Holy Spirit was speaking to the person in that moment. The Holy Spirit was convicting them. David Guthrie wrote specifically about this passage of Scripture that this passage suggests that apart from the activity of the Holy Spirit, one would never recognize his true condition. This shows the sterner aspect of the Spirit's work. And we think of this as a sterner aspect because it feels harsh. And we live in a time, we live in a day and an age where inclusivity and acceptance is paramount. And, and our God is a loving and accepting God. But we need to be careful that we don't read through the scripture and only focus on all of the places that Jesus shows grace and forget that when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's taking the punishment for sin for us. That it is the wrath of God upon unrighteousness that is being displayed. The work of the Spirit is so important and it can't be conjured. There is no incantation or spell that I can say just before the service starts to walk up here and make sure that everybody gets convicted. It's nothing that I can do. Listen, I could, I could preach my sermon harsh and stern, angry, mean. I could yell. I could do all of those things. None of that would have the impact that the Holy Spirit could have upon your heart. Only He can bring conviction. The greatest religious revitalization that happened in America was the Great Awakening and a sermon and preacher that were central to that were sinners in the hands of an angry God, this message by Jonathan Edwards. And the sermon, it laid the truth out very clearly that our hearts are desperately wicked and we desperately need, to, need Jesus to forgive us of our sins. But the record we have of Jonathan Edwards is that he delivered that sermon, reading each word off of the page, rarely looking up to make eye contact, rarely making gestures. He just read it. Not all about you, but if someone gets up in front of a crowd and they just read, and they don't look up, they lose me. 
We, we've been so conditioned that everyone on television is looking right at us, not breaking eye contact. What we don't realize is that when they're looking at that camera, they don't see us. They just see those words. They're reading in front of us. But we've been conditioned, man. Somebody can communicating directly to us. Jonathan Edwards didn't do any of that. He just read the sermon. But the Holy Spirit was working so powerfully in the lives of people that people were getting up in the middle of his sermon, coming down to the altar, begging God to forgive them. And people were clinging onto columns in the building, terrified that at any moment the bottom might drop out and they would plunge into hell. What was happening? The Holy Spirit was convicting people. It was the Holy Spirit that was working on hearts. How we how do we sanctify? It starts with conviction. It starts with knowing that there's a problem that has to be fixed. You know those little lights in the, the dashboard of your car? That they come on and tell you there's something wrong with your car. Do you know what mechanics call those? They call them idiot lights. Because in their minds, you're an idiot if it takes that for you to know there's a problem with your car, right? Like, oh, you didn't, you didn't realize there was no oil in your car until the light came on? That light, it's an indicator. And honestly, when, when the Holy Spirit does convict us and it shows, the Spirit shows us there's this problem in our lives, it's kind of like, I don't know how I didn't see that. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of an idiot. I'm kind of a moron. How did I not see that before? But it's not until the Holy Spirit shows it to us that suddenly it is plain as day. But before that, it was not. And you cannot fix what you do not realize is broken. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a blessing. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The sanctifying powers of the Holy Spirit start with conviction, and thankfully they don't end there. They then move to liberation. Look at verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The Spirit would convict of sin and would convict of righteousness because I go to my Father. The Holy Spirit is going to show us what is right. Jesus has been with the disciples, showing them this, living it out in front of them. The Spirit is going to show us what is right, because not only do we get to see this is what's wrong, we get to see this is how I fix it. This is how we move forward. The message is not just you are unrighteous. The message is not just you are a sinner. The message is you are a sinner, but Jesus has the grace you need. You are unrighteous, but Jesus has the righteousness you need. The Holy Spirit doesn't just point out our sin to be cruel, but rather He points out your sin so He can point you to the solution, so that He can point you to the Savior. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul speaking about how people are bound in their sin just as they are bound by the law. But then there is this wonderful phrase, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. The Spirit doesn't just want to convict you. The Spirit wants to liberate you. The Spirit shows you your sin so He can liberate you from your sin. The Spirit convicts you of your sin so you can be freed from your sin. And notice what Jesus has done here in the opening words of this chapter. He tells them, I am telling you these things so that you will not stumble. 
And then Jesus goes on to tell them that life is going to be miserable. He says, they're going to throw you out of the synagogues. Now, that phrase may not mean a whole lot to you because you didn't wake up this morning planning to go to the synagogue. You didn't wake up yesterday thinking about going to the synagogue. But for these people, this had been the central hub of their community. This has been life. This is where everything happens. Every significant moment in their village, in their, their family has happened around the synagogue. They're going to be tossed from that. And he says it's going to get to the, so bad that there are going to be people, that when they kill you, they're thinking, they think that they're doing God's service. They feel like they're doing God a favor when they take your life. How hard is it going to be for these guys? It's going to be really, really hard. They're going to be alone. They're going to suffer violence. And Jesus says, I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you of my, my coming departure. I'm telling you of the Holy Spirit so that even when you face all of that, you do not stumble. How could they not stumble in that? It would be because the Holy Spirit would free them from the affairs of this life and they would not be seeking the agenda that we typically seek. They would be seeking the agenda of heaven. The Holy Spirit would give them this freedom that even when their lives were being taken, they had joy because they knew that they were going to see the Father. They were going to be reunited with Jesus. How do you not stumble when you are alone? How do you not stumble when you're facing adversity? How do you not stumble when your very life is threatened, when the Holy Spirit has so liberated you from the clutches of this life and this experience that you are ready for the next? There's a radio program produced by the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. And it used to come on a radio station in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I lived Every night at around 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., it was late at night it would come on. And it always started with this kind of like eerie organ music. It kind of sounded like you were starting to listen to like Tales of the Crypt or something like that. It, 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 you know, But it was unshackled organ music. And every, every one of those programs was the story of someone whose life had been freed from sin. And they would, they would tell the story of their life over the course of about 20 minutes on this radio program. And all of these horrible things that had happened to them and, and all of these addictions that they struggled with and how they were enslaved to them. And you know what happened every time in that story? The very things that Satan meant for evil against them would become a part of the story of their redemption. It would be given purpose and the story of their freedom of their unshackling. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes the messed up brokenness of this world and he turns it into how God is freeing you from this world. In Romans 8.15, it says, We have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. How many of you remember the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta? Do you remember that? All right, the old people in the room and me. Um, my, my, friend, my friend the other day said, it's so weird. It's so weird being the same age as old people. And I was like, man, that, that really strikes home. You know, Faith Church is turning 41 next week, and so am I. And so I'm just kind of feeling over the hill. 
1996 Olympics. I remember a lot about that Olympics. I was, I was, you know, I was young. I thought it was just so amazing that they were in the U.S. I also remember Michael Johnson. Do you remember Michael Johnson? He set new world records in the 200 and the 400. One gold in both. Just an incredible runner. Michael Johnson would, would write later in his biography that a lot of times people equate life with a marathon. And he said, but I think life is more like a sprint because you work for years and years and years to shave off a hundredth of a second. And you work for years and years and years where nobody can see you and then there's just this brief 10 second moment where you're on the stage. And all of that work hopefully pays off. I think that's the way the Spirit works too. Works for years and years and years in our lives for these pivotal, important moments that happen. The Holy Spirit is a, a spirit of conviction. He's a spirit of liberation. And what He wants to do is not only show you the chains that hold you down, but unlock them, break them, snap them, grind them to dust. And the thing that you've been holding on to for so long, the thing that has dragged you down, the thing that has haunted you, the Spirit has the power to break it, to break those bonds. Because He's not a spirit of bondage. He's not a spirit of fear. He's a spirit of liberty, a spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of conviction and liberation, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of connection. Jesus tells them, I am sending the Helper because He is leaving. They are going to lose that physical presence, but there would still be a connection. They would still stay in touch. And when Jesus first started introducing the Holy Spirit in John 14, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. You're not going to be fatherless. You're not going to be on your own. You ever been struggling with something and you just, you just, like, isn't someone supposed to help me? Isn't someone supposed to show me how this works? God doesn't leave us untrained, unattended. He left us the Holy Spirit who keeps us connected to the Father. And so that's why the passage says it's not a, a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit of bondage. It's a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, we call on God as our Father. In verse 13, Jesus would state that whatever the Spirit hears, He will pass along. That He will be the connection between the Father and us. That what the Spirit says to us will be coming directly from the Father. We probably all know someone that's really good at pointing out what's wrong. But maybe they're not so good at fixing it. The Spirit is not one who just shows you what's wrong. He provides power and connection to fix it. The Holy Spirit produces holiness in us by connecting us with the Father. In Romans 15, 16, Paul would say, 
that I should be minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Paul is saying it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. But Paul doesn't call himself a minister of the Holy Spirit. He calls himself a minister of Jesus Christ. Because the work of the Holy Spirit connects us to the power of Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit magnifies the work of Jesus Christ. In two weeks, Pastor Dustin is going to preach to us specifically on this idea that the Holy Spirit exists to glorify Jesus. But that's what the work of the Spirit is in making us holy, convicting us of our sin, liberating us from that sin, and connecting us to Jesus who leads us forward away from that sin. You were not created to go backwards. You were created to move forward. But you can't do it on your own. So the Holy Spirit connects you to the engine, the locomotive, the powerful force that is God the Father and God the Son, who draws us out of the muck and the mire. That when we follow Him, we follow Him forward into new life. This time our team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. And they're going to lead us in Ferris, Lord Jesus. And do you know that Christians have been singing that song since the 1600s? The song that we're about to sing has been around longer than America. Believers have been singing about Jesus and how wonderful, how beautiful He is for hundreds of years. This hymn has stood the test of time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit constantly points people back to Jesus and how good He is. We're going to pray and then let's sing that song together.